Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah 55 tonight. Isaiah 55 is chock full of language and verbiage that we know well. The first two verses, and then I'm going to hand out a bunch of verses. In fact, I think I'll hand them out now, and you can just hold on to them until the appropriate moment. In fact, Tom, why don't you turn to Matthew 5, 6. Steve, why don't you turn to John 7. You're going to read verses 37 and 38. Luann, you feel like reading? Sure. John 4, 14. Micah. You're going to be wrapping up with Revelation 21.6. April, you feel like reading something? Sure. You're going to be in Lamentations 5.4. So you'll actually be starting off when we get there. Contextually, we have to remember that Isaiah 55 is not suddenly Isaiah bringing up new ideas, new concepts. He's still continuing the same prophetic line of thinking and vision that we find in Isaiah 54, that we find in Isaiah 53. There's this continuation of thought. The reason that's important is because last week we saw all of these very positive promises and statements for Zion, for Jerusalem, in chapter 54, starting with the promise that they were going to be so many people and so many animals that it was time to start enlarging their tents and lengthening the cords and strengthening their tent pegs because they're going to spread out abroad to the right and to the left and their descendants are going to possess nations. God promises them that they are going to live without fear because, he says in verse 5, your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And then he explains that for a moment in his outburst of anger, verse 8 told us, he hid his face from them for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, everlasting loving kindness, he was going to have compassion on them again. And then he looked back at something he had already done in history, the days of Noah, And he reached back to the days of Noah and said, this promise that I'm making to you today is like the days of Noah for me. The reason that's important is in Isaiah 55, God's going to do the same thing again where he reaches back to something that he has already done in human history in order to give Jerusalem and Zion sort of a linchpin that they could hang on to to say, oh, okay, this is like that. Only this time he's going to say, this is like that covenant I made with David. So he reaches back into actual things that he has accomplished, whether it's the flooding of the world and the resulting rainbow to remind him of his everlasting covenant that he would not again flood the world, or whether it's the unconditional covenant with David. God remembers all the things that he has said and all the things that he has done, and he points back at them to say, see, I already did that. And so you can count on me to also do what I'm telling you I'm going to do. And we will look at that in more length in just a moment. But this is like the days of Noah, when I swore about the waters of Noah that I would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I'm not going to be angry with you anymore. So there is a day coming for Zion, Jerusalem, when God is not going to be angry with them anymore. And even though they were afflicted and storm-tossed and not comforted, God then promises them new Jerusalem. And we saw last week the comparison in the descriptions that Isaiah lays out and the new Jerusalem to come. 
And he promises them ultimately that they are going to have this covenant relationship with him based on his everlasting loving kindness. And so we went and looked at Jeremiah 31 and the promise of a new covenant to come. Now, one of the important elements of the new covenant, whether you're reading it from Jeremiah 31, whether you're reading it out of Hebrews 8, the one thing that you will really notice about it is that it is unconditional, just like the Davidic covenant was unconditional, just like the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. God did not say, I'm going to do this for you, Abraham, provided you keep your end of the bargain. In fact, before God passed through the cut-in-half animals in order to establish that covenant, he put Abraham to sleep so that Abraham wouldn't try to keep half of the covenant, wouldn't pass through the animals. God alone passed through the animals. He formed a covenant with himself. He swore by his own name. Same thing with the Davidic covenant. It was an unconditional covenant. At no point did God say to David, now I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to establish a house for you. I'm going to establish a legacy for you that is going to culminate in my son, who is then going to rule on your throne over the 12 tribes of Israel. He never placed a condition on it. And in fact, one of the amazing parts of the unconditionality of the Davidic covenant is that David was a sinner just like the rest of us. And all you got to do is give a little bit of thought to what you know about David committing murder so that he could cover up his adultery. And then God killed his firstborn child from that adulterous relationship. And yet, even though he was told in no uncertain terms how guilty he was, God also said that he was going to forgive his sin and then made this promise, this everlasting covenant with David. Well, that's just like the new covenant. You can read the new covenant and you will never find a condition in it. Instead, what you find is God continually saying, I will, I will do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to establish Judah and Israel. I'm going to take out their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to write my law in their inward parts. None of them are going to have to teach his brother or his neighbor and say, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. But what you won't find in all that language is, provided you do something. Now, that is diametrically different than the Moses covenant. The Moses covenant, which in the New Testament is referred to by Paul as the first covenant, that was a legal covenant that was very conditional. God told Israel, if you break my law, if you don't keep my commandments, I'll drive you out of your land. I'm going to punish you depending on how you keep your side of the covenant. And in fact, at Mount Sinai, when Moses came down with first the Ten Commandments and then the 613 ordinances to go with it, he came down with the tablets of stone and he read it out to the congregation. And the congregation of Israel said at that point that they were going to do it. Everything that God said, we will do. So they agreed to the covenant. And then they didn't do it, which Moses told them right at the beginning. Now, you're not going to do this. And when you don't, God's going to punish you. And so then, sure enough, the history of Israel is, just like we just read, God was angry at them for a moment. And so he, in his anger at them, drove them out of their land, took them into the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity because that particular covenant was conditional. But he's going to restore Israel because the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. There were no conditions. Instead, God just simply promised that he was going to bless the descendants of Abraham in perpetuity. And so what are you going to do about the fact that there is also this covenant, the Moses legal covenant, that is going to cause God, require God, to punish Israel. Well, that's why the promise of a new covenant and why it starts with the language of, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt, when I took them by the hand, which covenant they broke. So God himself compares the Moses covenant to the new covenant and says the new covenant isn't going to be like that old covenant. And then you get to the New Testament and you read how Jesus took that covenant, nailed it to his cross, and took it out of the way. Then Paul writes in the book of Galatians that the inception, the beginning of that law covenant, and then the ultimate end of that law covenant did not disannul the covenant that was made through Abraham 400 years before that. So even in the New Testament, Paul is continuing to argue for the perpetuity of the Abrahamic covenant. And it is because of the Abrahamic covenant that God sent the Messiah to the planet to redeem his people so that he could keep the unconditional Abrahamic covenant and then made an unconditional new covenant and an unconditional Davidic covenant because the one time that God ever made a covenant with human beings and said, I'll do my part if you do your part, they didn't do it because they can't do it. So God, in order to make any kind of covenant that's going to have any kind of lasting power, has to make it based solely on his own character, his own nature, and make it unconditional where humans are concerned. Got all that? It is in that big context that we then read chapter 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, eat. Ironic language there. If you have no money, come buy it anyway. In other words, it's free. It's free food. It's free water. Now, this is just tremendous language that is really going to resonate with people who are living in the Middle East 2,700 years ago. Let's see if you remember anything that I've ever, ever taught you. In the Middle East, a couple thousand years ago, when you woke up every day, what was job one? Food. Find food. Find food. Good. I'm so glad that people remembered that. Find food. Equal to that was find water. Because you can live for a few days without food, but you got to have water. And it was hard sometimes to find clean water, to find water that was abundant, accessible, enough that it could feed a whole society of people. That's why cities were always built near waterways, because you were going to have a whole community of people who required regular water. One of the lamentations that April is about to read us, the lamentations were written by who? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was writing to who? Same audience as Isaiah. He was writing to Judah, the southern kingdom, as they were in their 70-year captivity in Babylon. In the midst of that, Jeremiah lamented the fact that in order just to get their daily necessary water, Israel had to work hard to make money to then buy their water. That's what April's going to read for us now out of Lamentations 5.4. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. We have to pay for our drinking water. So our lives, our very existence comes to us at a price. We have to work just to make some money to then buy the things we need to stay alive. And Jeremiah was lamenting that that was the state of Israel during the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so that being their state, and since Jeremiah was writing to and lamenting over the same people Isaiah was writing to, can you see what a wonderful prophetic vision it is for Jeremiah or for Isaiah to write? Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And you that have no money, come by, come eat, come drink. That would be the absolute inverse of what their life was at that very moment as they were working as destitute slaves. 
You that have no money, come buy, eat. And not just water, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that that is not bread? What was job one? Find food. So why, if you're working so hard and you're getting a measly wage, why would you spend it on anything other than bread? Instead, buy those things that are necessary for the sustenance of life. Why would you spend your wages for that that does not satisfy? But listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So rather than having to spend every little bit of your living, anything that you might earn, any little bit of money or credit that you might get, you have to spend it on water and you have to spend it on bread. And here is this prophecy for Israel that everyone who thirsts can just come to the water and freely eat and drink and wine and milk without money, without cost. So that image is an image of deliverance and abundance and God's provision for them and was the absolute inverse of what they were living through at that moment. Now, that prophecy is then picked up in the New Testament and Jesus himself makes it clear that he is the one through whom anybody's going to receive the water of life, the living water. For instance, Matthew 5, 6, I believe that's during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So he uses that same language of thirsting, that same language of craving water. And he says, for you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'm it. Through me, you're going to be satisfied. Picking up on the same language that Isaiah used, that concept of hunger and thirst is going to be eternally satisfied. Jesus points out that he's the one who is going to be the satisfaction to that craving. Steve is going to read John 7, 37 to 38, Jesus here is at the great feast in Jerusalem, which would be the Feast of Tabernacles. And what you need to know is that every day during the Feast of Tabernacles, the high priest would very ceremonially take a large urn of water and he would go to the spring of Gahan. And he would go there and dip the pot into the water. And as he did it, the residents of Jerusalem who had traveled with him to the spring would sing and celebrate, and he would very ceremoniously take that water, and then he would march it up to the temple and pour it over the altar as everyone sang and shouted for joy. And in the midst of that, Jesus stands up and says what Steve's about to read. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here Jesus makes a direct connection. Isaiah says there's water coming. There's water in abundance. Jesus says anyone who's thirsting, if you're thirsting for righteousness... I'm your solution. And anyone who is thirsting for the righteousness of God, anyone who is looking to be satisfied, come to me. This ceremony that the high priest is doing, dumping the water on the altar, that is all a type and a shadow that is prefiguring me. You're watching it, you're doing it, you're celebrating it, you're singing over it, but it's all pointing at me. If you come to me, out of you is going to flow rivers of living water. Well, of course, they understand that symbology much more dramatically than we do. Because as I said, job two every day, find water. Maybe that's job one. Maybe job two is find food. But water was an essential thing every single day. And they didn't 
have running water in their taps the way we do. We waste water because we don't even think about, oh, water. But in the Middle East, 2,700 years ago or 2,000 years ago, water was a very, very difficult commodity to, to find and to have in abundance. And so, of course, the prophets and Jesus himself would speak of the water of life. If you don't have water, you die. And so he likened the Holy Spirit that he was going to give to people as the living water that was going to flow abundantly through them. And it's great typology. It's wonderful typology. But every time that Jesus says something like that, the only reason that his audience would be able to make that connection is because of Isaiah 55. They would get the connection instantly. John 4.14, is that you, Luann? 4.13 and 14. Sure, why not? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So see, Jesus kept using that language of water because water was a necessity to stay alive, as it still is today. And so that typology of water that gives life, Jesus kept utilizing it and saying, that's me. I'm the living water. It's only through me that you're going to have this abundance of water that Isaiah spoke of. And finally, Micah, I think you've got Revelation 21.6, because when we get all the way to Revelation and the new Jerusalem and the new age to come, what do we find? Water, abundance of water. And it's going to sound very similar to Isaiah 55. Read it if you would, Micah. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Without cost. I will give them water out of the springs of life. Okay, so knowing that that's the way the language is carried throughout the whole rest of the Bible, I hope you can see the importance of the phraseology here in Isaiah. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, and without cost. And that is finally satisfied and fulfilled in the new Jerusalem, in the new age, when Jesus himself invites everyone present to come and have their abundance of water from the springs of eternal life. And you get it without cost. I just really enjoy the fact that the message of grace rings loud through that message. Your whole life you've had to labor for these things. Why would you labor and then spend your money for anything other than what is bread, what is sustenance, what is important? You even have to pay to find any drinking water. And so this wonderful phraseology of the gracious gift of the waters of life and eternal life and the spirit of God permeates the Bible. And I just decided that we would look at those five verses. But if you go through the Bible and look at how many references there are to water, it just keeps showing up. And it is all saying the same thing. It's all pointing you back to Christ as the source for the living water. Listen to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear, says verse 3, and come to me. Listen so that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. That's why I began this evening by pointing out the unconditionality of the Davidic covenant. Because here is God saying, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you who is Isaiah writing to? I have to put a fine point on this. I have to underline it. I have to put it in a bold font, big red letters. Who is Isaiah prophesying to? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, to Zion. And he says to them, 
God's speaking, listen to me, incline your ear, come to me, listen so that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The only way that it can be an everlasting covenant, which by the way is phraseology that is not used about the Moses covenant anywhere. But in order for God to say, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant, it cannot be dependent on human beings because human beings will break it. Human beings will destroy it. So for God to make an everlasting covenant, he also has to make it unconditional. But then he says that. He says the kind of covenant, the everlasting covenant I'm going to make with you is according to the faithful mercies that I showed to David. Why are they mercies to David? Because David was a sinner like you and I. He was a murdering adulterer. His sin is so large that he writes, my sin is before me every day. He couldn't escape how guilty he was. And yet God said, I'm going to forgive your sin. And I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you a dynasty. And your greater son is going to sit on your throne and rule the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's going to happen long after you're dead. And so God takes that unconditional character of the Davidic covenant and says, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you, Zion, just like the one I made with David. So it has to be an unconditional covenant, which is why we finished last week by looking at the new covenant and the promises. And as long as there are sun, moon, stars, and waves, Israel will continue to be a nation before me forever. So the language is very, very consistent. And by the way, no one in the New Testament, no one in the New Testament, if I mentioned that no one in the New Testament, not once, not anywhere, nada, you can't find it, goose egg, look all the way through the New Testament, and you're never going to find anybody say, oh yeah, that promise, that's negated. People in the church world seem to be saying it. But nobody in the Bible says it. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, so that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies I showed to David. Behold, I have made him. Now this him appears to be a direct reference to David's greater son because that is the promise according to the faithful mercies shown to David. The Davidic covenant culminates in the coming of Jesus. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples and a leader and a commander for the peoples. Now, that word peoples right there, neither time is goy or goyim. And so it would be easy at this moment to say, well, he's not talking to the Gentiles. And I believe that's true. The word, the Hebrew word, actually just means a gathering or a community of people. And so Christ, the one who seems to be referred to here, God has already made him a witness to the people and a leader and a commander for the peoples. Most likely that is then the peoples of Israel and Jerusalem. But Then, verse 5 says, Behold you, apparently you people, apparently the people of Israel, behold you will call a nation you do not know, and there he uses the word goy. That is non-Jews, non-Israelites, Gentiles, us. You will notice again that consistent with the whole Bible, the blessings that come to the Gentiles come through Israel. Behold, you will call a nation who you do not know and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. There he is using that name for himself again. The Holy One of Israel. We just keep seeing God refer to himself as the Holy One of Israel. It seems like he's trying to tell us something. Because <laughs> he keeps saying he is the Savior, the Holy One, the Redeemer of 
Israel specifically. And so the Goyim, the Gentiles, are going to be blessed through Israel. And you, Israel, apparently through the gospel, are going to put out a call to Gentile people who you do not presently know. And that nation that you don't know is going to run to you because you have the words of life. You have the gospel, ultimately. You have the Savior. You have the God who actually redeems. You have the prophecies. You have the oracles of God. You have the answers to life's questions. And so the nations are all going to come to you for the answers, for the deliverance, for the good news. Behold, you will call a nation that you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. God is going to glorify Israel in such a way that they are going to be the chief nation. Jerusalem will be the chief mountain of all the mountains of earth. And that kingdom wherein his own son sits and rules the world is going to be about ruling first and foremost in Israel and the blessings of God coming through his son then go out to the Gentile nations from Jerusalem. And so then you continue to read that the Gentile nations are going to come to Jerusalem, are going to come to Israel, because that's where the real God is, because that's where the real blessings are, because that's where real deliverance and forgiveness from sin is. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not, because God blinded their eyes, exactly like Isaiah 6 tells us. God said to Isaiah, you're going to go and preach to them, and I'm going to blind their eyes so that they don't understand it, so that I don't heal their nation. And then Jesus comes to his own. His own doesn't receive him, resulting in them killing him, which is exactly what God planned in the first place, so that he would then redeem his people through his sacrifice of himself. And then the word went out to the Gentile nations about the Savior of Israel, about the Messiah of Israel, which is why Paul, in his entire ministry, went to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Because that equation, Jew first and Gentile, through Israel, out to the Gentile nations, is consistent all the way through the Bible. Unfortunately, because we Gentiles are as egocentric as all other people, And because we all individually think, whoever we are, however old you are, you think history started when you were born. And it did with you. Is that what you're saying? Okay, good. I met a girl a couple of months ago who actually said to me, Elton John started rock and roll, right? I mean, I'm just saying, everybody thinks that human history began when they were born. Whatever their lifespan is, that's where the important history is. A girl who asks her father, was Paul McCartney ever in a band before Wings? Exactly. I I can't go on with this. I saw an interview with Ringo where his son actually asked him, weren't you Paul McCartney's drummer? In any case, the point holds that we all think history begins with us because we're just that egocentric. As a consequence, egocentric modern-day Gentiles pick up the Bible and start reading it and think, it's all about me. It's all about us. It's all about the present-day church. It's all about whatever's happening to, to us right here, right now. And they forget that the history of the prophecy of the Bible And the way that the gospel was presented to the nations all had to do with to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The blessings of Christianity reached you through Israel, through the Redeemer of Israel, through the Jewish Messiah, and then to you by grace. And so sometimes we have that tendency to forget that and think that it all starts and ends with us. 
But the biblical story, time and time again, is that God made these promises in perpetuity ever since Abraham to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we, by grace, are grafted in to a tree that isn't by nature ours. So verse 5, Behold, you, Israel, will call a nation, Goy, the Gentiles, who you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Then starting in verse 6, there seems to be an address to the Gentiles pleading with the Goy the same way that God has just said, you will call a nation who you don't know. Verse 6 is the beginning of that call. This is what they're going to then say to the Gentile nations. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and return to our God for he will abundantly pardon So that is the plea that goes out to the whole world, to the Jew and to the Gentile, the plea that you repent. And even in the New Testament, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not just faith, but faith and repentance. Because repentance is a vital part of salvation here on planet Earth. And so the plea to everybody is not only seek the Lord instead of seeking your flesh and seeking your worldly pleasures, call upon him while there's still time. Call upon him while he is near. He's close. And if you're wicked, forsake your way. If you're an unrighteous man, forsake your thoughts. And then let the man return to the Lord because God will have compassion on you and return to God because he will abundantly pardon. That is the essential element of the New Covenant and of New Testament Christian theology, that through God and only through God do you find the compassion that is required to forgive you for all your sinfulness. So all the way back here in Isaiah, we hear about a God who is not only a righteous judge, a God who is not only willing to be angry and punish people in his anger, but then he is also willing to be long-suffering with people and have compassion with people and abundantly pardon. Why is he abundantly pardoning? Because we are abundantly sinful. We are overflowing with sinfulness, and so it would take overflowing kindness, overflowing grace to forgive people like us. Okay, so the plea so far has been, you're going to find forgiveness. You're going to find water. You're going to find food. You're going to find the compassion of God. Just come to him. Why would you, why would you do anything else? Why would you spend your money on anything other than that? Why would you put your effort into anything except that which nourishes you? And God says, listen carefully to me. Eat what's good. Delight yourself in my abundance. See, the language is just wonderful language of a compassionate God who is pleading with people to repent of their ways, turn to him because he is going to supply absolutely everything necessary for your full, complete salvation and redemption and forgiveness and eternity and his spirit overflowing and abundant, flowing to you and through you. These promises are not New Testament promises. These are promises that we find all the way back here in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. 
and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. By the way, that promise, if you know that, turn to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If I had an hour, I think I could just camp on that verse. But I know what it is to look at yourself and think, how could I be this corrupt? How could I have done this? How could I be this far away from God? And here I am thinking at one point in my life that I have some interest in the things of God, and then then I'm like this again. I get fed up with myself on a regular basis. But if you know that you can always go back to God and he will have compassion on you because he's a compassionate God and he doesn't change. That's part of his nature and character to be gracious to you and to have compassion, which means calm. Passion means with deep feeling, with understanding. Jesus, we're told in the book of Hebrews, became a human so that he could feel our feelings so that he could know what it was to struggle, to suffer, to be thirsty, to be hungry, to be tired. He knows what it's like to be infirm like we are. He was a human being in flesh walking on the planet so that he wasn't just a God in heaven who was untouched by the feelings of our infirmities, but rather became like his brethren so that he could have one-on-one empathy and compassion on us. And so if you know that God not only understands, he gets it, he knows we're just dust. And if you know that he's going to abundantly pardon you, abundantly, over and over again, abundantly pardon you if you know that you have angered God, if you know that you have wandered off like the erring sheep you are, if you know that you have yet again gotten caught up in your own sinful depravity and stupid head, running away from God is the wrong approach. Press close to God. Run to God. Run back there because you're going to find your father sitting on the throne who knows what you're made up of and sent his son so that he could have first-person empathetic compassion on you. So the best place you could be when you mess up yet again is as close to him as you can get. Press toward God. Plead with God. Admit your failures yet again, knowing fully that he will abundantly pardon Can you see why I could camp on that verse for a while? But we have to move on. So many times over the last 20 years, I have quoted Isaiah 55, 8 to 11, because this is one of the most sovereign verses in the whole of the Bible. And I keep saying to people, you're not like God And God's not like you. I didn't just make that up. That wasn't me being clever. At this point, God, speaking first person, says that. And he says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, and my ways aren't your ways. And as high as the heaven is above the earth, that's how high above you my thoughts are and my ways are. In other words, every once in a while, God's going to be ways and do things that we just don't understand But it's what he's going to do. There was a fellow who was visiting with us a few months ago. And I sat and talked with him after church. And he said, you know, if God is so sovereign, why doesn't he? And then he had kind of a list of things. He's been asking preachers. Well, if God can do anything, why didn't he just do it this way? And I said, well, you can speculate all you want. Or you can stand toe-to-toe with the Bible and accept reality and move on. And he actually said, I have asked so many preachers that question. That's the best answer I ever got. Accept reality and move on. God is how God is. 
and you don't get to change God. Have you ever known anybody so well that when they act the way they act, you just say, well, that's the way they are. <laughs> you know, you're not going to change them now. That's just the way he is. I'm sure Luann could tell us all kinds of things about Steve. <laughs> say, well, that's just the way he is, you know? She never says that. Boy, did she shoot you a look just now. He could be so much better. Oh, well, sure. I think we all collectively agree with that. Yeah, but <laughs> that's what God is saying here. I, I am like I am, and you're not going to change me. I am unchanging. I am eternally exactly like I am, and I'm not like you. I'm completely, utterly different than you. So all you can do is accept that this is how I am, accept reality, and move on. Because this is what God is like. God says, starting in verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, does anybody have any estimate they'd like to throw out about how big the universe is? Where is the edge of the universe and how far away is it? And if you're traveling at the speed of light, how long would it take you to get to the edge of the universe? Okay, nobody in this room knows. God knows. He knows exactly where all those things are. He calls every star by name. He created it all, most of which, the vast majority of which, we've never seen. Oh, for heaven's sakes, there's things in the ocean, deep in the abysses of the ocean. Oh, we've never seen, but they're there. God knows they're there. I think God does, like, does stuff like that just to entertain himself. He just makes all these glorious things that really he's the only one who gets to enjoy them. Okay, so he knows where the outer edge of the universe is. And then he compares that to what you know and what he knows. And he says, my thoughts and my ways are as far from you as the edge of the universe. <laughs> you're, you're not going to figure that one out. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Okay, so now that we know that, God has now expressed his absolute sovereignty. God has already said, I think completely differently than you. Much higher, much grander, much holier, much more eternally than you're capable of thinking. And therefore, the things I do, my ways, how I am, my character, my nature, is entirely different than you. So I'm not like you, and you're not like me. Therefore, verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear fruit and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Okay, so God starts with a reality of nature. Clouds get formed. Condensation builds the clouds. The clouds burst. The water comes down. Comes down as rain or comes down as snow, and that waters the earth. And as a result of that watering of the earth, plants grow. And because plants grow, people get to make food. And people get to eat because of this cycle of rain and condensation. And God uses that as his example to say, when I send the rain to the earth, it's on purpose for a reason. And the purpose and the reason, he says, is so that it'll water the earth to make the earth bear fruit and sprout up and it furnishes seed to the sower so they can grow more. And it furnishes bread to the eater. So the rain is not random. Nothing God does in his universe is random. The rain and snow and the watering of the earth 
has a purpose and it accomplishes his purpose. If you ate today, then what he just described worked. Okay, just like that cycle has purpose to it, God says in verse 11, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire for it to accomplish and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So God first gives you the example. So you could go, yeah, okay, it rains regularly and then condensation works and then the clouds come and then the clouds burst and the rain comes back and we all get to eat as a result. Okay, that has purpose to it. And then God says, that's what my word is like. He didn't say that his word falls randomly on the planet. He said he sends his word. And he sends it on purpose to locations where it will accomplish exactly what he intended to accomplish when he sent it in the first place. And he said, and it's never going to return to me without accomplishing that. And if you think, well, never? Is it always going to work? Go back to, hey, hey, who are you? And who am I? Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. My thoughts are as high as the heavens are above the earth. My ways are as high above your ways as you can possibly conceive of. And I'm telling you what I'm like, except reality, move on. I'm telling you what I'm like. And one of the things I do with my sovereign ability is I make sure that when I send my word to the planet, it does exactly what I send it to do, or I wouldn't have sent it because I know what I'm doing. And if you want proof, you ate today. And if you ate today, my word is still out there accomplishing what I sent it to accomplish. Amazing. By the way, look at the very, very high platform, the very high level that God set his word on. That's why Jesus would say things like, man does not live by bread alone. Yeah, it's nice to have food. We want food. Yeah, the rain comes, we eat food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the necessary sustenance. That's the necessary nutrition for eternal life. And I think that gives us more understanding of the promises of come, buy, drink, eat in abundance without cost. That can't be talking about just physical eating and drinking. This has to be God saying, I have the eternal life to give you. I have the gifts of eternal life. I have the fountains of living water. I have that bread of life that Jesus said, I'm the bread that came from heaven. It all comes back to God saying, without me, death. Without me, destruction, punishment, judgment. But I'm a compassionate God, and if you'll come to me, come running to me, come to me, turn to me, repent of your ways, and come to me because I'm not like you. And if you think you can't come to me, quit using your own logic. I'm telling you what I'm like. And if you're worried that I'm not going to be compassionate and gracious, who are you to say that? You know, when Paul writes in the book of Romans, and comments on people kind of questioning, how can God be like that? The question that Paul brings up is, you will say to me, how does he yet find fault seeing as how no one resists his will? And I just love Paul's answer because his answer is, who are you? And I think that answer is dependent on the very thing we're reading right here. That God is like God is, and he didn't check with anybody. He just is like that. And every once in a while, we're going to scratch our head and say, yeah, but how does that work? How can he find fault with people who only did what he determined they were going to do? And rather than give a theological explanation, a doctrinal dissertation on how that could be true, instead of explaining philosophically how that all works, Paul said, who are you to question God? This is what he's like. Accept reality, 
move on. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Okay, now that he has said all that, now that we understand that his word always does what he said it's going to do, he's saying that to Jerusalem who were captive, who were having to pay just for their water daily. They're in a destitute state, and he's promising them this glorious future. And he says to them, For you will go out with joy, and you will be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. And instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will grow up. And instead of the nettle or the thorns, the myrtle will come up, pleasant trees. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Okay, now can you imagine that? Nope. You have no idea what that's going to be like. The mountains celebrating and the trees clapping their hands. I, can, I think I could handle the idea of no more thorns or thistles. I think I could handle that because in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, the curse that was placed on them also fell to the earth, and we read that weeds and thorns came up among the plants for the first time. Okay, so that's a significant sign. When God makes a new heaven and a new earth, I can see why he would leave that out. Leave out the, the plants that choke away life from the good, nourishing plants. I get that. Mountains celebrating, trees clapping their hands. Obviously, what Isaiah is describing here is that the planet itself is going to celebrate when God keeps his word to Israel and returns them to a place where they are shouting for joy because they are led forth in peace and they're going out with joy, and the whole planet, the new heavens, the new earth, the millennium and the new Jerusalem ultimately to come, all of that is going to be a result of God controlling all of human history, resulting in, redounding in, a sovereign God accomplishing exactly what he said he was going to accomplish, and the whole earth is going to celebrate. And how do we know that's going to happen? It's a tough one to conceive of. But how do we know that's going to happen? Who are you? And who is he? And I think that's why, before he expressed that yet again, I'm going to make this everlasting covenant with you, Jerusalem. The Gentile nations are going to flow to you. Blessings are going to come to the Gentiles through you. And they would say, how? How? Do you not see us? Do you not know the captivity we're living in right now? How is that ever going to be the state? And God reminds them, my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. I put my word out. It accomplishes what I put it there to accomplish. Because I'm God and I'm sovereign and I'm in charge and I can do whatever I want. That's what I plan to do. I set it way in advance. And now I'm going to set forth to actually doing it. Then in time, in human history, we see parts of it. We see that Christ the Messiah did come. And we see that he did die. And we see the full satisfaction of Isaiah 53. We're waiting on the full satisfaction of Isaiah 55. But if Isaiah 53 came true, Isaiah 55 has to also because it's the exact same God who doesn't change, who said all of it, and his ways aren't our ways, and his thoughts aren't our thoughts, and as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much more powerful he is, mm -hmm. and how much higher his thoughts and ways are. And so even if you have a hard time conceiving of it, even if your particular denomination or your theology or your pedescatology doesn't have room for it, Cast out your traditions. Cast out your eschatology and your philosophies and your traditions. Get rid of all that and go back to what does the word of God say? Because God said it's going to accomplish exactly what I sent it to accomplish. 
in other words, accept reality and move on. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. 